I'm re-releasing this episode because of how critical it is. In my quest to be taught how to best have a fruitful discussion with those hesitant about the vaccine, I interviewed two science communicators, a social engineer, a lawyer, an expert in cognitive biases, and a motivational interviewer. And out of all of those, the last one, motivational interviewing, was the one that was the most powerful tool for moving the needle on those hesitant to get the vaccine. Motivational interviewing comes from addiction medicine, but using it for vaccine hesitancy precedes the COVID pandemic. It's used for new parents who are considering foregoing their newborn's vaccines. Mandates are going to get some to get the vaccine, but for others, a conversation with their trusted physician can be a powerful thing. Dr. Joseph Weiner taught us how to use it to help our patients with vaccination and other decisions. Dr. Joseph Weiner is an associate professor of clinical psychiatry, medicine, and science education at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, where he co-directs the four-year curriculum in physician-patient communication and interpersonal skills. Thinking and writing about how patients and clinicians communicate with each other has been a major interest in his career. Please share this episode. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. There are a lot of podcasts out there. Murder mysteries, breaking news. There's even a podcast about garden gnomes. Garden gnomes. But instead, you're here. Learning how to be the best physician you can be. Smart move. Do you know what else is a smart move? Working a locum tenens assignment with Comp Health. Now, I know what you're thinking. You already have a job. But that's the best part. You can work flexible locum assignments on the side for extra income. Or you can work locums full-time too. And to top it all off, locums almost always pays more on average. Just head to financialresidency.com slash comphealth and see what locums can do for you financially. Dr. Joe Weiner, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh boy. Thanks, Brad. I'm looking forward to this. So you were recommended to me by my sister-in-law, who you work with. I said, who is the guru of motivational interviewing? And they said, you. And this is something that's going to be critical to us and really useful to us in talking to people about vaccines. But before we get into that, let's just talk about motivational interviewing. So what is motivational interviewing? Yeah, it's a way of connecting and communicating with someone about behavior change that helps them find the reasons to change. And it's particularly focused on language and how to recognize when a patient is invested in sustaining their behavior. And when you hear that, how you can facilitate their movement towards language that indicates they're open to changing their behavior and how to recognize how close they are to making action, creating action. So a brief summary, it's a dialogue, a conversation about behavior change that's particularly focused on language. How did it start? 
because we're going to be applying it to different places than its origins. But I think it's interesting to know how we, you know, where it all began. Yeah, it's it's has a super interesting beginning. Uh, Miller and Rolnick are the originators of motivational interviewing. It came out of their experience in substance use, treating people with substance use. And in the 1980s, the treatment of substance use was fairly authoritarian. Patients were assumed to be in denial of their problem, and they had to be forcefully motivated to recognize their denial and to change through the use of authority. And Dr. Miller recognized that wasn't particularly helpful. He was working on a unit that approached it a bit differently, and he had an opportunity to listen to his clients or patients and see that these people were bright and wished to have a healthier life. They were very different than the stereotype that was described of a substance user. And in those days, they were called substance abusers, right? And a similar experience that Dr. Rolnick had in a different set alerted him to how this just was not working. They had a fortuitous meeting in the United States and they began to collaborate, developing a different kind of model that was based on clinical intuition rather than theory. What do you mean clinical intuition? Yeah, some interventions, let's say the COVID vaccine are based on theory that are and hypotheses that are scientifically rooted resulting from years of empirical data. What I mean by clinical intuition is they felt that the use of authority was not productive. Is there another way? And perhaps people um, could develop their own reasons for change rather than for the clinician to suggest and impress upon them the reasons to change. And if the clinician were to do that, what they found is patients rebel against that. So perhaps collaboration would be a better model, they thought. They began to explore that and make observations and write a zillion papers. Thousands of papers have been written about motivational interviewing. And it's been applied in, let's say, since a zillion papers have been written, it's been applied in a zillion divided by 10 situations clinically. And so those are the general origins of this phenomenal way of engaging with patients. So you mentioned that previously that the issue of addiction was approached in an authoritarian way, telling people what to do. Yeah. And leads to the concept of psychological reactance, which you mentioned without naming it. What is psychological reactance? It's kind of like this. Brad, you need a haircut. <laughs> so what was your reaction Clearly. to that? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> but did you say to me within your own mind, you know, you're right. I, I really do need a haircut. I'm going to, as soon as we're done talking, I'm going to go get one. But no, because people don't like to give up their autonomy 
It comes from evolutionary theory. So reactants, people are going to react to commands by resisting. People don't like to be the beta dog. And so if someone were to come up with their own reason to change, they will feel more in command of their life. If they agree, and you see this so often with teenagers, right? If you tell a teenager what to do, uh, get out of my life, but as the book says, can you drop me off at the mall first? <laughs> and so there aren't a lot of great ideas that teenagers have that aren't taken by parents first because they just simply haven't lived long enough. And so if a parent suggests the one or two good ideas that a teenager may have, the teenager is very unwilling to give up their autonomy. And so they would rather rebel. I'm being making this an overgeneralization, of course. They would rather rebel than do something really cool that would be beneficial. So it's an outgrowth of the understanding of the importance that people have in self-determination. There's another thing called self-determination theory that was not used to develop motivational interviewing, but has been seen to align with motivational interviewing. In our dialogue before, we had talked about how the stages of change aren't part of motivational interviewing theory, but but don't they actually play a role in motivation? Don't you need to recognize what state someone's in before you would apply motivational interviewing? You, you actually don't. And they make a point of uh, saying that perhaps we can talk about what stages of change are. Yeah, let's start with that, please. And stages of change were written about by Prochaska and Di Clemente. And they described what they thought was an evolution of stages that people went through towards greater and greater readiness to change. And there, in my opinion, I use stages of change a lot in ways that we can discuss if we have time, particularly related to end-of-life decision-making. But it, it kind of goes like this, contemplation, preparation, readiness. Pre-contemplation, meaning the person is not even up to thinking about change. Contemplation, they're thinking about it and they have ambivalence about it. Preparation, meaning they're moving along towards readiness. They're not quite there yet. And then readiness, they're ready to change. And then they added two other stages, maintenance, which before we went on the air, you were talking a little bit about habit and how difficult it is to maintain a habit because motivation diminishes over time. So maintenance is another stage in stages of uh, change. And then relapse, and where does somebody relapse into contemplation, preparation, readiness? And then the cycle repeats and you try to stretch out the maintenance phase. And so I find that really helpful. May I explain why? And we'll kind of tie it in with clinical work and then go back to motivational interviewing. I find it really helpful because clinicians, in a way that the substance abuse literature and, and clinicians did in the 1980s, overuse and harmfully use the word denial when they speak about patients. Like this patient is in denial of their prognosis from stage four lung cancer. 
And denial, as contemporary clinicians use it, it's sort of like the following definition, denial. I am right and you are wrong, but you don't know that you're wrong. And if a patient feels that you think that about them, uh, of course, they're going to feel diminished, uh, disempowered, resentful, and mistrusting of your investment in them as an autonomous human being with the, the right to have self-determination. As opposed to denial, I am right and you are wrong and you don't know that you're wrong, pre-contemplation could be thought of as you and I have different points of view and you're not in conflict with your point of view. And then it's up to the clinician to understand what your point of view is, which may have a lot of merit. And the reason for, for, for that, and this is getting a little bit off the path, but we can return to it because it's an overlooked area of motivational interviewing, I believe. A reason that it's so important to think about different points of view is that medical decisions are not just medical decisions, they're social and emotional decisions. And so I may not want to stop smoking because that's where I hang out with my friends. Or I may not want to stop drinking because drinking is a social activity for me. And I don't want to stand out as being sober when all of my other friends drink heavily. Or the emotional aspect might be, I'm afraid I don't think I'm able to give up heroin. And I don't want to uh, be, I don't want to experience my fragility that way. And so usually people understand that they should stop smoking, right? It's less of a medical decision. There are other factors that weigh into it. And one of them that, again, perhaps we ha will have time to talk about later on or not, but just to throw it in there and then we can get back to motivational interviewing are the social determinants of health that make up 40 to 90% of medical outcome, depending on what you read. And the actual doctor-patient interaction is, I don't know, 20% of medical outcome. And I heard, I read it really well described recently in one of my favorite medical journals, Twitter, where somebody said a great definition of privilege is having good decisions to make, good choices having good choices, when there's the lack of privilege and the existence of profound social detriments to health, let's say, where you may have choices, but a lot of them aren't good choices. And so when we go back to the whole idea of stages of change, I think it's really important and it's very basic to understand the difference between denial and pre-contemplation and to understand someone else's point of view. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, the way you're changing that, right, from denial to pre-contemplation is in the spirit of motivational interviewing, right? Because with that, the patient has autonomy, right? They keep their autonomy and your interview with them is, or conversation, rather, is without judgment. And so what you're doing by putting aside the word denial is you're leaving judgment out of it. And yeah. So and, it, it seems to really mesh well 
yeah. with the spirit of motivational interviewing. It absolutely does. And we could talk about the spirit in a moment. You're absolutely right. It's not opposed to motivational interviewing at all. What Miller and Rolnick and collaborators will say, it's not necessary to utilize stages of change to do motivational interviewing, but it absolutely is aligned with the spirit of motivational interviewing. I think where the slight differences is that Miller and Rolnick and colleagues have articulated recognizing language that is sort of preparatory to change or activating to change. And preparation is sort of like contemplation and activation is sort of like some mixture of preparation and readiness. So it's kind of all there. They use different language and in ways that don't require the use of stages of change. So let's talk about motivational interviewing. How do I start implementing this in my practice? So, you know, as the audience knows, I'm an otolaryngologist. Most of what I do is outpatient. And so I I see a lot of people that have habits that may influence their outcomes, right? Someone has nasal polyposis and they smoke. Or someone has obstructive sleep apnea and they have an elevated BMI. And so- you know, some of the things that they, the habits that they have, I want to motivate them <laughs> to change those things. Yeah. So can I start? What? Where do I start? Where do I yeah. begin? Yeah, I, it's a great question. Perhaps we can start with recognizing what doesn't work and to hear oneself, to encourage someone to change and to hear what happens when a patient pushes back. And this is called the riding reflex, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. As doctors, that's how we're trained. We're trained to make bad things good. We're trained to prescribe. We're trained to do surgery. We're trained to prescribe. We're trained to do surgery. We're trained to intervene. We're trained to make decisions. We're trained to make diagnoses. So we're trained to do. And doing in the context of self-determination theory or psychological reactance leads to pushback. Can we do an exercise? I didn't prepare you for this. So for all the audience now, this is extemporaneous. It's very exciting, right? Like what's gonna happen next? So let's do the following, if we might. Can you, Brad, think of something, a change you wanna make that you need to do, you've been thinking about, but you haven't done it yet. And then I'm gonna demonstrate me trying to push you to change. Would that be okay? All right. So just to set this up. So Brad, what is it that you're thinking about changing? Taking social media off my phone. Okay. So I'm going to try to make that thing in your life go away now. So, well, you know, I have read so much about the downsides of overusing social media like it interferes with sleep, it reduces productivity, it can have a whole addictive feel to it, it removes you from conversing with other people at the dinner table. You know, in my opinion, people overuse social media on their phones, don't they, Brad? Yeah, a lot of a lot of people I don't think I I don't think I overuse it. You know, uh-huh. I, I I don't use it as much as a lot of people, but I still want to use it less, but I wouldn't say I use it a lot. Yeah. Well, now 
you want to remove it from your phone though. And so you're saying that, and how, how could you do it if you wanted to, if you went, you know, cause we know that people overuse it. Yeah. Yeah, you, you told me you wanted to remove it. So how would you do it? I would just open my phone and delete the apps. And that would, in my opinion, I think that would improve your life. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? I think I should, but I don't know if they're going to stay off that phone. Oh, okay. Well, I think that's a kind of a, a matter of willpower, right? Yeah, I've tried it before and clearly I don't have the willpower. Yeah. Well, maybe if you keep in mind all the downsides to it, like it may interfere with your sleep, you know, the light from the phone and it reduces melatonin secretion and you're not going to be able to fall asleep. And then a lot of people, they overeat when they can't sleep and they gain some weight. And, you know, you know, so maybe if you keep that in mind, that'll help you. I mean, for me, the main motivator is that I check my phone when I'm hanging out with my kids. Oh, I see. Okay. See what I mean? Yeah. It, it, and it, it, and it keeps me from, yeah, and it keeps me from falling asleep. I don't wake up in the middle of the night and I check it, but I, you know, it, I, it, it does sit on the nightstand. And my wife and I were in bed early, ready to go to sleep, knowing that the kids are going to wake us up in the middle of the night. We scroll for, you know, longer, much longer than we should. So it'd yeah. be much easier if it wasn't on the phone. But yet I know if I delete it, it's going to end up back there. So why even bother deleting it? Okay. So that is taking a persuasive approach. On a scale of zero to 10, how much did that change your needle to go ahead and take these apps off, off your phone? Two out of 10, two yeah. to three, meaning 10 is like you're really motivated. I'm to ready to do it. I'm doing it again. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. And how much was it before we had that discussion out of 10? Probably the same. Maybe it moved it like one point, yeah. right? Yeah, Maybe it went from point. a two to a three. I'm glad to hear I, I didn't dissuade you. No. I'm glad to hear it didn't go down, but it clearly wasn't that effective. Let's compare and contrast just to give a feel. Would that be okay? Yeah. So what kind of change are you thinking about, Brad? I'm thinking about deleting social media from my phone. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Tell me about that. Well, it's keeping me from paying attention to my kids. I find myself because my phone's in my pocket. I, I still want to keep my phone on me because I want to take pictures of them. But when my phone's on me, I inevitably take it out from time to time and open the apps instead of paying attention to them. Yeah. My focus should be on them. Your kids are so important to you. Yes. And you really want to, as a dad, be very attentive. Yeah. And you're finding that having social media on your phone takes your attention away from your kids. Yes. Okay. And so that's one reason that you're thinking about removing social media from your phone. What, what other reasons are there, if any? Getting to bed on time. You know, my and, wife and, and I, we scroll a lot right before bed. And if it wasn't on there, then I might read a book or go to bed. Mm. It seems a lot more productive than scrolling. So scrolling keeps you up and it prevents you from reading a book that you might otherwise read. And what happens as a result of staying up and scrolling? More tired the next day, more distracted okay. the next day, need more caffeine the next day. Uh-huh. Okay. Tired, distracted, caffeine. 
And so other reasons that you might want to take social media off your phone? No, that's pretty much it. Those are the two reasons. Those are the two big reasons. So one reason is that it, you really want to focus on your kids and a big value you have in life is being the best dad you can be. And you find that social media takes away that focus that you would like to have more fully on your kids. And then at night, when you and your wife scroll, it keeps you up, prevents you from reading a book you might want to read. And the next day you're tired, you lack focus, and you're ingesting more caffeine than you would like. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, on a scale of zero to 10, how important, given that, how important would it be for you to take social media off your phone? I'm a bit more motivated now. It's a five or a six. A five or a six, which is certainly a lot higher than a one or a two or a three. Yes. What makes it a five or a six as opposed to a two? Just the reasons that we talked about. It makes it a five because it is just so important to me. I mean, ultimately it just comes, you know, getting more sleep is important so that I'm on my game when I'm in with my patients and not having it distract me from my kids. You know, I want to be on my game and at my best when I'm with my patients and when I'm with my kids. Yeah. And so this is, it's, I guess it should be higher than a five or a six because it's so important to me that those things are the case. Whereas how important is Twitter? I mean, I think I'm asking the wrong person here. How important <laughs> is Twitter <laughs> to the guy with <laughs> a lot of Twitter followers? But yes, you know, it's not that important to me. I could always open up my laptop once a day and, and get my social media time in, in a more controlled way rather than it controlling me. So you're also talking about a value you have to be the best physician you can be and that you find when you're tired and you lack optimal concentration you have to push yourself even harder to be the kind of physician you are and who, who, who you want to be yeah and so we're seeing that having social media on your phone affects your ability to be a dad it affects your sleep it affects your ability to enrich yourself through reading and then the next day you're tired, you have difficulty concentrating, you're ingesting more caffeine, and you may feel you have to push yourself harder to be the effective doctor that you value in your life. And, and so you, you said that you were kind of reevaluating, maybe you should think about it as a higher priority than you did before. So how would you rate it from zero to 10? I'm not sure whether you're asking actual Brad or actor brad in this scenario well, whoever you want to be i don't know <laughs> i didn't know if you were actual or actor before so yeah yeah whoever no, you know, all these things are was. real this is a real this is a real example yeah i mean each time we go through it i'm a little more motivated than i was before i mean it's hard for me to, to pick a number but i guess you know still a six or seven i'm not like a, yeah. a 10 out of 10 but i'm definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. you know i could feel the difference to when at, beforehand when you were basically inventing reasons from me that you might have as yeah. opposed to asking me what my reasons were and just and clarifying them for me and really putting them in terms of more gravity. You know, like when you said about my kids, like, the, you know, they are so important to you and they're your focus. And yet you've got this social media that's getting in your way. You know, that's it's got more gravitas when you said it that way than when I kind of more flippantly said it. 
Yeah, well, it, it, you were telling me what was important to you, and I merely reflected it back yeah. through, through uh, careful listening. And if we could demonstrate for um, your listeners one other thing, and then we'll double back and process what you experienced as the recipient of uh, this motivational conversation. So, Brad, given all of that, the impact on your parenting, the impact on your doctoring, the impact on your... What are your thoughts moving forward? Well, since you've reflected it back to me, it really makes me feel guilty about not actually moving forward and and deleting this stuff off my phone. So it sounds like you're. it's something you're very seriously thinking about. Yeah, it would be almost preposterous for me to, after having this conversation, to not actually delete this stuff off my phone. And it makes me a little sorry that I started this interview because now I'm going to have to delete all this social media (laughs) off my phone. Well, the thing about it is you are really the decision maker. You have total control of this decision. And I was just merely reflecting to you what you were telling me. So you're, you, so that's very important to keep in mind. And do you think, so based on this, do you think it's something you're ready to act on? I think it's something I'm almost ready to act on. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm totally ready to act on it, but it certainly moved up in the quite a a bit higher in the scale of readiness. And that's an example of that process of a motivational discussion that before it sounds like you were thinking about it. One might say contemplation or one might say preparative language. You were thinking about it. And now there was a little bit more activating language that you were using, you were, you were a bit closer, not quite ready to, to make a plan yet. And that's very realistic. And so I wonder if you were to compare and contrast the persuasive methodology where I'm banging you over the head and the motivational conversation, what was it like for you to be the recipient? Oh, clearly the motivational was much more effective, right? Because I wasn't being told what to do with someone else's reasons why I should do it. Yeah. They were your reasons, right? Yeah. This is so much at the heart of motivational interviewing. It's to help the person evoke their own motivation. Yeah. It's not about, you know, you should lose weight because it increases your life expectancy. What are your reasons for wanting to do it? Exactly. Yeah. And so, and and that's why I emphasize that it's really your decision so it's not a matter of feeling guilty because I'm kind of pushing. It's really your decision. And in that way, you're the alpha dog. Yeah. Cool. So that's so to get back to your question, well, how does one start this? Perhaps we can talk about the spirit of motivational interviewing a little bit and tie that into that example of a discussion. Would that please? Be- yes. I would also say at the end of this podcast, it's really tough to go from zero to 60 to do motivational interviewing to set expectations, maybe you can learn, you know, a little bit of a change in framework, or you'll hear one or two questions you may ask, or listen maybe a little more carefully to a patient of yours. And so I could recommend some ways to continue to to read about motivational interviewing, maybe even study it before we end today to give people a direction. Yeah, because it seems like when you did it with me, you did it in you know, there was a method there that needs to be learned in practice. It's not, you know, we can start having less judgmental conversations with our patients 
and trying to elicit their reasons, but to really weave it together the way you did, I, I feel like requires more practice and like any training. kind of skill, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's neither more nor less important practice in motivational interview. And I'm practicing it all the time and I can get better at it and hope to, when I'm 80 years old, you know, be like Yoda with the big ears <laughs> and two feet tall with the waistband up to my, the middle of my chest. And, <laughs> you know, so I'll look forward to those days. So the motivational interviewing people talk about four aspects of the spirit of MI, motivational interviewing. And it really starts from the spirit. And it took me a long time to get this. I spirit, schmerit, yeah, I get to do this, you have to think this way. But it's really a philosophical approach to engaging with a patient. And they talk about four things. One thing is acceptance, to accept the patient for who they are and understand they have the right to decide how to live their lives. That's very hard to do because we're trained to diagnose and treat. And if a patient wants to keep smoking and they have nasal polyposis, we're kind of feeling, no, you know, then I'm not able to do what I was trained to do, which is to help you with your polyposis. And so that's a yucky feeling for a doctor to have based on the culture of how we were trained. And so to um, be able to engage in motivational interviewing and to be able to, even if you're not doing formal motivational interviewing, for patients to feel this doctor really gets that the change is going to come from me and not them, it's to accept that the patient is the decision maker. And we all, you know, choose to lead our lives the way we do with pros and cons attached to them. Some people make really yucky decisions. And as long as they don't endanger themselves, uh, like suicidal or other people, homicidal, you know, people, as long as they have the capacity to make those decisions in the ways that doctors think about assessing capacity, you know, we have the right to do that, right? So acceptance. I like the way that you, the word that you use there, acceptance, because yeah. the, ultimately they're the decision, they are, we just need to accept it, right? It's not, we have mm. to relinquish the decision-making ah. to them. The decision-making has always been there because they're with us for 15, 20 minutes, and then they're not. And they're making their own decisions. So I, I like that word, accepting that they're making their own decision. Yeah. And it's not my word. It's, you know, we'll thank Drs. Miller and Rolnick for that word. And I like how you phrased it in the thinking about where, what, what it is that we are accepting. And if, you, if a doctor thinks, well, this patient is their decision maker, doesn't it take some pressure off of us? Yeah. Like at the end of this discussion, I must have this patient agree with me. And you bang your head against the wall, the patient bangs their head against the wall, patient leaves, you leave, you both take Tylenol and have to go <laughs> on with your day. It's very unpleasant, uncomfortable. And the main thing is it's not effective. It's not particularly effective. So the first part of the spirit is to accept the patient's the decision maker. And the second part of the spirit is to have compassion for them. We're all doing the best we can in life. And we think about those social determinants of health and who are our parents, what are our genetics, what's the environment we grow in. And, you know, we all want to have a nice life and we're doing the best we can. And so here's this person 
coming to me, making decisions the best they can and to have compassion for that. And there's a skill set in expressing compassion that we can talk about in a moment called reflection, how one reflects experiences back to a patient to demonstrate acceptance and compassion. So two of the four components of the spirit of MI, acceptance and compassion. Third thing is evocation. What does that mean? And I scratched my head over that word for a while. Evocation is what I asked of you. Well, what would you like to change? I'm evoking that from you. So Brad, you want to take a social media apps off your phone. Tell me about it. I'm evoking that from you. Well, it, it, it scrolls, it, you scroll at night. How does that affect you? I'm evoking that from you. Like I evoked, I didn't come up with any of that. You, I kept evoking. And so that's the third of four elements of the spirit of MI. And then there's collaboration we didn't quite demonstrate, but it might go something like this. Well, uh, so you're not quite ready to take the apps off your phone yet. Could I check in with you the next time we get together? Would that be okay? And so it's asking permission. That's one form of collaboration. Another form of collaboration is, so uh, Brad, you're not quite sure what uh, would sustain your motivation to keep these apps off your phone. May I suggest a couple of things? And that's another form of collaboration. So when we think about collaboration, there are many different ways to collaborate with a, a patient. And, it, and what underlies them tends to be, not always, but tends to be this concept of shared decision-making rather than a paternalistic or parental approach to decision-making. So acceptance, compassion, evocation, and collaboration are four elements of the spirit of MI, motivational interviewing. And so uh, where to start is really thinking about, well, how are we with our patients? What are our inclinations? What are our clinical reflexes? And what do we want to take, what do we want to take into account as we would like to change the spirit in which we engage with patients? If we wish, and like our patients, we're the decision makers of how we want to practice as the doctor. So then how do we get into the technique? So you'd mentioned reflection. And I mm -hmm. think in motivational interviewing, the people that practice it tend to love acronyms, right? Ors, PACE. Uh -huh. I'm sure there's a number of other ones that I'm not familiar with. You are less interested in the acronyms, but I think I still think there's, you know, there's something to be learned there. So yeah. with regards to the technique. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Reflection was, yeah, yeah, was yeah. a critical component, you yeah. know, repeating back to me, clarifying for me what my own reasons were. Yeah, yeah. How do I, you know, now once we're into the spirit of acceptance, compassion, evocation, and collaboration, bring us into the technique. I'm yeah, a yeah, surgeon. Yeah. Like, how do I do? How do you do, do it? How do you do it? How do you get yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of. Well, there are four things that a someone acquainted with motivational conversation. And I, I, even though it's called motivational interviewing, I don't particularly like the word interviewing myself. I like motivational dialogue, motivational conversation. It's a historic term. It's not going to change anytime in the near future, but interviewing is sort of implies a unidirectional thing. So I'll ask permission to use some term like motivational dialogue. There are four tools that people that are engaging in motivational dialogue over and over again. And if you read a transcript, you just see this over and over again. It's called ORS, O-A-R-S. O is open-ended questions. 
So when you said you wanted to take apps off your phone, uh, social media apps, I said, tell me about it. When you said, I don't like scrolling at night, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I said, in what way? So open-ended questions. And then affirmations, it's, and, and I actually didn't make a lot of uh, affirmation statements. It would be sort of, oh, I think it's, I think it's really great that you hear today exploring what's important to you for the quality of your life. That's an affirmation statement, pointing out something you admire or like about your patient. And so that's a affirmation. R is a reflective statement. And that takes sort of a lot of practice to, I still practice that every day. And reflection, imagine that you're a mirror and you're just giving back what the patient gives you. You're just reflecting that back. And there are simple reflections like, um, it, it would kind of go like this. You're telling me that, well, actually let's practice it so people hear. So what is it like for you to scroll at night, you and your wife in bed and you're scrolling at night? So we're just sitting there, not interacting with each other, not really act interacting with anyone else in any meaningful way, except for the rare times we actually post something. And then we look at the clock and a half an hour has gone by or 45 minutes has gone by. So it's just mind numbing and wasteful. Mind numbing and wasteful. Wow. That's powerful. That was a reflective statement. Mind numbing and wasteful. Wow. That was powerful. And if you hadn't said mind numbing and wasteful, I was thinking what words could I use to describe Brad's experience? And I uh, was trying to come, you came up with better words than I was uh, thinking about. Uh, I was uh, thinking about, wow, that sounds frustrating. So I might've said, wow, that sounds frustrating. And uh, oh, go ahead, Brad. Well, if you had called it mind numbing and wasteful, I think it would have been more judgmental, right? I would, I think you would have probably gotten some of that psychological reactance out of it. And I would have said, you know, it would have made me, you know, back into my corner a little bit. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Whereas like, you know, that I think it'd be hard for me to come up with a term in your situation for, for something that wouldn't make me, you know, back into my corner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's fair to say, because your, your level of upset probably didn't reach my, to give me permission to say mind numbing and wasteful. It did give me permission to say, wow, that sounds frustrating. And so the clinician will think, what word that, that can I use to reflect what I'm seeing that will be acceptable for a patient to hear? And so that's the A part. That's called a simple reflection where you're kind of saying, that's mind numbing and wasteful. And I'm kind of repeating it back where somebody is, is really sad and they're crying and you say, you know, I see how, how sad this situation is for you. So it's a simple reflection. You're really repeating what's obvious. A complex reflection is you're guessing something deeper, which is when I said to you, you really value being a good dad. That was a complex reflection because that was implied with the statement, it takes me away from being with my kids. And those are more challenging kinds of reflections to learn how to do. So for people that are starting out in motivational interviewing, 
oh, there I go, motivational conversation, motivational dialogue approaches to try reflective practices and that are simple, giving the patient what they're giving you on, on a straightforward way. And if I were to have said to you, Brad, because some people will say, that's BS. Why should I have to tell somebody what they're already basically demonstrating to me? And it does get to compassion and acceptance. Because if you say, if I said to you, Brad, wow, that sounds frustrating. How would you have felt about me saying that to you? Fine. Like, I, I mean, I, I just, that you, that you're, I mean, like not offended meaning, but I, I would have felt that you understand me, that you're, right. you're getting what I'm saying. Exactly. That I'm accepting you for who you are. And I'm saying in a way that's compassionate, not judgmental. Right. And so that's so important, reflective statements and affirmation statements, because the very beginning to go back, how does one get into motivational interviewing? You're first establishing the connection with the patient. You're first establishing the relationship and you're doing it very consciously. It's not just a matter of being kind. It's a matter of seeking out how a patient will get that you accept them and you're compassionate for their struggle. So that's the A and the R. We talked about the O. Before we go on to the S, which is summary, summarizing, any other thoughts before we go on to that? No, please. Okay, cool. And so S is summarizing. And you saw me summarize when I said, so by engaging in social media apps on your phone, what I'm hearing happens is you are not focused on your kids. You don't go to sleep as well as you'd like. You don't read books as much as you want. You wake up tired the next day. You are having a hard time concentrating and you ingest more caffeine. And that kind of goes against your value of being a, the best dad you can be and the best doctor you can be. That's a summary statement. And when somebody makes a summary statement like that, it does several things. Summarizing does uh, four things at least. One thing is you put together in your own mind what somebody's going through, and that could really help you accept them and be compassionate for them. And we could use summary statements as clinicians when you're gathering a patient narrative as you're taking a history, and that helps you also think, well, what's the differential diagnosis and where do I wanna go with this discussion? So summary statements are really important. So that's one thing it does. The second thing it does is you could correct me if I heard you wrong. Like, no, I didn't quite say that. I really said this. And then a third thing it does is it helps the patient hear their own story. Like maybe they need to revise their own story. A fourth thing it does is you're presenting, as Miller and Rolick will say, a bouquet of flowers to them. This is what the situation is. I'm presenting this to you. This is my gift to you, this summary statement. So you could really take in what's going on now. And actually a fifth thing is it could also buy you some time to think about, well, what would I want to ask next? Or where do I want to go with this whole thing? So we'll say five summary statements do five things. So open-ended questions. There is a point for closed-ended questions, of course, but in the evocation, what is somebody's motivation? What are their reasons? How would they go about doing it? Open-ended questions are really helpful. O, open-ended questions. A, affirmations. I'm really glad you're here to see me today, Brad. Reflective statements go 
for simple reflections when you start out, and then summary statements. They do that over and over. So that's entering in. And then we could give a taste of MI in a moment, like the script, the structure in a moment. But let me pause there. So we're trying to, we'll eventually tie this into vaccine hesitancy, right? So the one thing that I'd like to, so I mean, I want to take this interview in so many different directions. What can we use it for? What can't we use it for? But if we're going to be going through examples, you know, because ultimately the the theme of a bunch of these episodes that I've been doing have all been around addressing vaccine hesitancy. So for our next example, is it okay if we use it in a situation where a patient is hesitant about the vaccine? You bet. I mean, specifically the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. This is the end of part one of two, so stay tuned. In the second part, we discuss specifically applying motivational interviewing techniques to vaccine hesitancy. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.